Hello. Hello, and welcome to the Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture in order from the very first award ceremony to eventually the present year. Today, we are wrapping up the nominees for 1931-1932 with the winning movie, Grand Hotel. I'm Susan Raslin. And I'm David Daw. Right, so, Grand Hotel. This was the winner for this year. (laughs) Yeah, it really was. This was the most theatrical movie we have seen. And I think I've said that about like 18 of the movies we've watched. But like this one far and away. Oh, definitely. Was the most like, oh, this was a play. The weird ass framing mechanism of the old doctor going like, Ah, nothing ever happens at the Grand Hotel. It's always the same here. Where you're like, oh, that's definitely coming back at the end. And then it does come back at the end. But then also a man just died. So what the (laughs) hell are you talking about? I mean, normally we would go through what the plot of this movie is. But it is really convoluted. (laughs) I could speed run it in three minutes. Wow, that's a long time. But go ahead. Yeah, that's a long time. I mean, it's definitely more than in old Arizona, which took a sentence. Um, (laughs) But there's, I mean, there's a lot of characters. They're all staying at this hotel called the Grand Hotel. Uh, One of them is uh, going to die and is therefore sort of spending his life savings staying at this really fancy hotel. Um, There is also a guy who is a baron, but as it turns out, is pretending to be a baron in order to stay at the hotel and steal from Greta Garbo's character, who is a dancer. He is a Baron. He's just broke. I, see, I thought the Baron thing was fake. He stops calling himself a Baron when he is with Greta Garbo's character. And, like, talks about how he was, like, raised to do some stuff. But, like, I thought the Baron title was fake because he doesn't use it around her. The only person he's, like, really being himself with. But either way, he's, like, a he's poor. hotel thief. Yeah, he's poor and he's in deep and has to steal some money from somebody. He starts like half a romance with Joan Crawford's character, which is the weirdest thing about this movie, and then falls deeply in love with Greta Garbo's character while trying to steal from her. Meanwhile, because you got to do meanwhile like four times in this movie, there is a rich asshole businessman who has gotten a crush on Joan Crawford's character and who the dying man used to work for, whose business venture is falling apart. And he kind of decides he's going to live a life and have an affair with Joan Crawford rather than continue to pursue business now that he's completely failed at his business venture and lied and potentially going to get into a lot of trouble. Eventually, after trying to steal from, like, everybody else in the hotel and feeling bad about it every time because he's really a good guy, the Baron finally decides to steal from the asshole businessman who everyone has hated for the entire movie, (laughs) gets caught, and the asshole businessman beats him to death with a telephone. At which point the asshole businessman calls in the guy who's dying of some mysterious illness and tries to bribe him into lying about what happened. The guy won't do it because the dying man is awesome and is by far the best character in this movie. I'm going to take you to task on that later, but I'll, I'll let it go for now. We'll see. I mean, easily top three. That I'll agree with. The businessman gets uh, sent to jail by the dying dude. The dancer, Greta Garbo's character, is like lied to repeatedly that the Baron is coming to meet her in Vienna. And the dying dude runs off with Joan Crawford in what I think intentionally reads as kind of a manic episode from both of them about the Baron being dead. But that may not be intentional at all. Then they all leave while a new couple who I want to know everything about because they have driving goggles and I want to know everything about everyone who ever wore driving goggles shows up. And then the doctor, who is an incredibly minor character who exists only to have like burn makeup and say 
prosaic nihilist things about the nature of the hotel, <laughs> repeats his famous line, people coming, going, nothing ever happens, and then the movie's done. Yeah, you actually did it, and I think that was less than three minutes. Awesome. I went into this movie really, really wanting to love it. Like, I'd read a bunch of criticism of it, and I knew that it had just a ridiculously high rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Just looking at the cast in a list, it's Joan Crawford, Greta Garbo, Wallace Beery, who was the champ in The Champ. Not one, but two Barrymore brothers... The cast is, on paper, totally phenomenal. The cast is absurd, yeah. There were a lot of camera innovations that were created for this film, specifically involving the round, like the 360-degree hotel check-in desk. Mm -hmm. I wanted to love this movie. I already loved this movie, and I didn't love this movie. I didn't hate it. Yeah, I would agree with that. Like, there's... It never fully grabbed me and i think like part of it is just like the cast is so stacked there's so many people that like i spent a lot of time going like wait who's this again what's their whole thing which is weird because fully three-fourths of the characters have like exactly one quality that they loudly announce over and over again the moment they come into a scene i just spent a lot of time not even like confused but just playing catch-up I couldn't help but compare it to Shanghai Express because apparently there was a critic who referred to Shanghai Express as Grand Hotel on Wheels. And Shanghai Express, almost all of the characters in Shanghai Express were very colorful archetypes. And sometimes what was fun about that movie is it would turn those archetypes on their heads. But most of the time they were just straight up like, here's your cardboard cutout cliche. But the thing about a cliche is that it comes to you fully formed. I felt really like none of these characters as written were fully formed. Lionel Barrymore as the sick guy who's dying and John Barrymore as the Baron were phenomenal and made very fleshed out characters out of what on the page was not a whole lot. But Greta Garbo's character, I mean, she has her famous lines, you know, I want to be alone, I just want to be alone which I feel like only really become famous in the context of her life as a human being, where she quits acting. Because her character was like, ugh. Weirdly, I feel the same way about like Joan Crawford in this. Is like, Joan Crawford is interesting in this in that it is Joan Crawford, and we know who Joan Crawford is and what she becomes in like Joan Crawford's whole life. She's got that one great scene with the Baron like early in the movie. Yeah, but then they're like, oh, just kidding. They actually don't have a romance at all because he inexplicably falls completely in love with this super depressed, utterly charmless dancer played by Greta Garbo. Who just like is everything wrong with performers. And everything wrong with the representation of women who need saving because it's like, why bother? Right. She doesn't have actual <laughs> problems. I mean, I guess she does have actual problems in that she almost commits suicide. So clearly she's got some, like, actual problems, but she doesn't have external problems. No, she definitely has some kind of mental health issues going Yes, on. and, like, a desperate need to be, like, that is monomaniacal. Eventually, like, everyone who's, like, enabling her by constantly lying to her, there's no exploration of that at any point in the movie, there's just, like, a guy who's gonna love her enough that it's all fixed, which, who boy, no, don't do that, don't do that, no one involved do that. <laughs> but even that cliche can work in a sort of fairy tale way, and it doesn't in this movie, but the tragedy of it is not, is never really fleshed out. I felt like so many characters in this movie were very flat. That's kind of what I mean about the like opening line, last line thing. Mm. There is this thing in this movie where like characters will introduce themselves and then will loudly announce their arc. And then that arc will just happen. Like there will not be a like, oh, that's what they believed would occur. And then actually this other thing, because life has plans for you. It's like, no, people will come in and be like, one day I'm going to tell that guy what I really think of him. And then later in the movie, there's a scene where he tells that guy what he really thinks of him. 
and like that's it that's the whole arc to get to what you were saying about how Otto Kringlin Kringlin yeah Kringlein, yes. How Kringlein is the best character by far in this movie. I'm actually going to walk back that I'm going to take you to task for it because you're absolutely right. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And it is not because of how he is written on the page, but it is 100% to do with Lionel Barrymore because the character could absolutely be insufferable and just a total sad sack and somebody we hate. Yeah, and is for the first like 10 minutes. You're like, oh boy, he's going to keep inserting himself into everybody's much more interesting plot lines. <sighs> and then like, nope, you're like, by the back half of it, you're like, oh, thank God Kringlein is here. And it's okay. And really by that you mean, oh, thank God Lionel Barrymore is here. Yeah, absolutely. I also felt that way about John Barrymore. You know, I, I don't think I've ever seen anything with John Barrymore in it. I just know that he was wildly famous and was considered at one point the greatest living tragedian. And he... He just is really bringing some kind of charisma to the Baron that certainly is not on the page. I couldn't help thinking, especially because that, like, there were a couple of... One of the things on the Wikipedia page is that, like, this was the original Ocean's Eleven because of all the famous people in it. And, like, John Barrymore is totally the... I think I told you I've been re-watching ER just because it's on Hulu. Yes. The thing with ER is how fully formed George Clooney is as, like... George Clooney, handsome man who kind of deserves to be punched in the face because he knows how handsome he is. But also, damn it, he just is that handsome. (laughs) And John Barrymore in this feels the same way of just like, he's like such an actual charming rogue. And we've seen so many movies with a character who's supposed to be a charming rogue where I'm like, who's this asshole? And why isn't he dead yet? And like, I genuinely, when the Baron dies, I'm like, oh, Not him. Also, the meanest shot in this movie is when they remind you of his little dog after he dies. Oh, oh, he has a dachshund. Yeah. The whole time I was watching the movie, I was like, don't forget to talk about the dachshund. (laughs) So again, like a a parallel with Shanghai Express, but maybe the only place where Grand Hotel, I think, pulls ahead of Shanghai Express is with the traveler character who is obsessed with their dog. And his relationship with his dachshund is so adorable. It's not the creepy old grandmother who's like, oh, I have to have my little dog. It's just a really nice relationship between a man and his dog, but also a little eccentric. He coddles the dog a little more than is absolutely necessary. Yeah, like the very first time you see him, He is demanding one of the bellhops at the hotel take his dog for a long walk. Which is actually, it's adorable. It's great. He's a really cute dachshund, too. John Barrymore manages to pull off, for me, the statement that he fell in love last night. And that it's really real. And I'm like, you know what? I totally buy it that the Baron is, like, legitimately in love. Because there is an element of surprise to it of like I never really believed in love at first sight or that it could happen this quickly but it's it has struck me whereas Greta Garbo's character saying that she's in love kind of feels like every man who's given her attention for five minutes she's probably said that about too I would agree with that the other thing that I think is remarkable about the John Barrymore scene where he like says he fell in love last night is one he says that to his other love interest And two, it does not actually read like an asshole move. It reads more like, well, I mean, I've got to be an adult about this and just tell her. Which, like, none of the other male protagonists in, like, anything we've watched have done. No, because, you like, imagine Maurice Chevalier saying it to somebody in in any of those Ernst Lubitsch musicals. There's three separate musicals. And it would be such an asshole thing. Well, not just an asshole thing. It's that he would never say it. There would be three hours of him doing, like, wacky musical numbers of trying to get out of ever having to say it. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And it did feel very adult and very much like, hey, I have fallen in love with someone else. 
there was an element of apology to it of like, I'm sorry if this hurts you and I'm sorry that I started anything with you. If I had known that this would happen, I never would have. Like there's something incredibly adult about it while never having any of the subtext spoken. And that's the thing where you're like, holy shit, this man is an unbelievably good actor. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff that Lionel Barrymore is doing similarly with Otto Kringleine that is, you know, not about being incredibly charming. Well, I mean, I guess is, but is not about being like romantically charming in the lead male kind of a way. It's about just this guy trying to navigate the world and be a good person. And that is really charming. It's also interesting because Kringleine is not charming, but he's guileless. And everybody in the movie, except for his old boss, really wants to take care of him. And it doesn't feel like out of pity so much as like, oh my gosh, this guy is, I mean, he's very childlike. And if we're not here to take care of him, he will totally fall apart. But because we enjoy his company and he is like, he sparkles. He has that childlike sparkle. There's even a couple of points like early in the film where it does fall over into this weird like, is he okay? Like, is he like, is he all there? Uh, like, and it could be such a like cloying, awful, like, this isn't a full person. It's just this like caricature of guilelessness and it could be so awful as a character and it isn't because yeah Lionel Barrymore like makes him sparkle like makes it understandable that all of these people would want to be around him are you familiar with the play or or the musical adding machine it's like a 19 teens play I do not know it okay so the play is basically about this guy who is employed at a, a company and he is He's like an an adder, like he adds up stuff for the books on paper, mm -hmm. but they get adding machines at the company. So he gets called in on his 25th anniversary of working at the company, thinking that he's going to like get the golden watch and get celebrated for his 25 years of service and instead gets fired. And so he kills his boss and then like the rest of the play is him in the afterlife or whatever. Kringlein is like very much that character. He has had such a shitty time being employed by Wallace Beery's character that like his nerves are shot. He's totally frazzled because he's had this incredibly horrible job that he has dedicated so much of his life to. And that's that's a really sympathetic thing. <laughs> I think that kind of gets to what I was thinking about the nature of this movie and the play, which is like, there are all of these like small, subtly done things that are incredibly interesting and incredibly like intricate and well done. And then like it just drops the ball on things it's supposed to be giving its full attention to. Mm, yeah. There are so many times when like a plot comes to the fore and you're like, that's it? Like, that had no development. It comes out of nowhere that the Baron falls in love with Greta Garbo's character. Nowhere. Like, you spent the first five minutes of the I've fallen in love with you scene thinking, like, all right, what's his angle? Like, how's he, like, what's this scheme that he's running right here? Which would have been, a, I think, actually a much more believable and more interesting angle there. The whole story really feels like, and maybe this is just the result of John and Lionel Barrymore being the greatest actors in this movie. In a cast of great actors, they're in another stratosphere. But it feels like a movie that is about Crinkleine and about the Baron that wants to try to force an ensemble thing, and it's not there. Because Joan Crawford is, I mean, she is doing her damnedest with absolutely nothing. Wallace Beery is horribly miscast as the evil businessman because he still looks like he's going to put on boxing gloves and go drunkenly get in a prize fight at any moment. And Greta Garbo is like, is just utterly wasted on a character who is... Yes. Who is so infantilized that it's it's misogynistic. Those characters don't matter. And yet they are supposed to have as high billing and supposed to be as important. And the movie actually dedicates time to them. And any scene that lacks a Barrymore in this movie is just like, why are we still here? Can we please get one of the Barrymores on screen? 
immediately. <laughs> I think, like, the whole quality of this film can be summed up by, like, the first two minutes, which is a, like, well-staged, smart thing of all these cuts between all the different telephone booths at the hotel, where people are making calls and sort of establishing their plot lines, and it's all intercut, and you can tell how busy the hotel is and what everyone is doing from that. And then suddenly there is this awkward jump cut to the doctor just sitting in a chair in a completely different room that hasn't been, like, matched at all. You don't try and, like, set it up with the rest of the space in any way. And he just says this prosaic line because he has to, because we have to directly state what the plot is about. Even ironically. Yeah, and, like, it's all so messy and unnecessary and like it's supposed to be the big finish and like that's the thing is like it keeps getting all the little details right and then stumbling at the finish line god greta garbo's first scene even if it weren't already like terminally underwritten is so awkwardly edited they're not even matching shots like she's clearly moved her hands but it's supposed to be continuous and it's really distracting. What it really boils down to when you're talking about things being underwritten is when you compare the conflicts of the various characters, Greta Garbo's conflict, her main conflict in this movie is she clearly suffers from clinical depression and she is not drawing the audiences that she used to. Her backstory, though, is literally that she used to have bigger audiences. That's it. We know nothing. Is she an orphan? Why does she have these people around her who are not her parents? Is she 16? Is she 32? Because she acts like she's in her early teens, but she's not drawing the audiences she used to, so... Right. Like, she acts like she's in her early teens, but everyone around her treats her like she's, like, 55 and about to retire. Right. And they've got to get, like, the very last of her money out of her while they still can. Right. (laughs) And also, she's Greta Garbo. So you're just... Just like trying to process all that information at the same time and figure out what the age is supposed to be. There's no major conflict in her character. So she has no she has no story. She's no story arc. Joan Crawford, similarly, like what is the conflict in her life? She met a guy in the hotel who flirted with her a little bit and then the next day was like, hey, sorry, I fell in love with somebody else. And she's like, ah, well, nothing happened, so we're fine. And, like, maybe she wants to be an actor, but she doesn't really seem to be all that upset about the fact that she's essentially a stenographer. No, and, like, the thing at the end, I am not sure what the intended reading of her and Kringlein, like, running off together to Paris is supposed to be at the end. It doesn't feel romantic to me. It just felt like, what the hell? Let's, let me come and be your personal assistant because you're fun to be around? (laughs) Right, but is it like, is it supposed to be fine that the Baron just died and both of them are like, oh, let's go to Paris? Are we supposed to read that as like an avoidance thing? Are we supposed to read that as both of them embracing life in a new way? Are we supposed to read her as like coming with him to take care of him, but also he has the money to take care of her? Like, I don't, I like it. I like both of them and I like that they both get to go to Paris, but I like don't know why it's happening or what I'm supposed to think about it. Whereas I totally understand it with Kringlein because he is, his whole existence in the movie is he is, he has a terminal illness, he's facing death. He's essentially had a horrible life with an abusive boss and all that he wants is to squeeze every last drop that he can out of life before he drops dead. That's a conflict! (laughs) That's a story. But his boss, by comparison, like the great conflict that he has in the movie is that this merger or whatever with the Manchester Cotton Company doesn't come to fruition. But we're never told what the stakes of that are. Is his company suffering so that if this doesn't happen, like he's going to be bankrupt? They don't say so. So how am I supposed to infer that? He also doesn't seem terribly stressed out about it, except for in the moments where someone is literally talking about it. There's so much stuff where I can't tell what is like actors subtly playing a thing that's supposed to be there and what's just like dropped by the movie entirely. The other thing with Kringleine is that, like, at the very, very end, Joan Crawford's character just goes like, we'll just find another doctor who'll cure you of the thing. And Kringleine just, like, goes with it immediately as if he'd never thought of that. 
was that added by the studio at the last minute to give you the potential out of a happy ending? Was that in the original play, but you're supposed to yeah. read it as like manic denialism? Are you supposed to really read that like literally Kringlein had never thought of this before and that like he is in fact going to find a doctor who gives him a second opinion and cures him of whatever like Victorian wasting disease he's slowly dying of? There's so much ambiguity that isn't ambiguity so much as it's just messiness. It's just that the writer didn't think about it. And that it was left to the actors to, like, pick up the pieces. And largely they do, because it's a lot of really good actors. But then there are still these moments of just, like, no, they can't square that circle. It just can't be done. I feel like that there's a similar dropping of the ball in the art direction and costume design for this movie, because... The costumes look cheap across the board, and it drove me absolutely out of my mind because here's a movie where you have some of the biggest stars of the day, and you've got them wearing costumes that look, they look bad. You know, this Russian ballerina is supposed to be hyper glamorous, and, and the things that she's wearing are absurd on occasion, and other times just look cheap and flimsy same thing with with our businessmen even and Joan Crawford's dress and hat look cheap but not in a way that feels intentional because she's a stenographer because the quality is across the board with everyone else's that to me is like is the biggest and most obvious symptom of this larger thing of like I can't tell what a lot of money is supposed to be in this universe where everyone is caring about money, where it's a constant topic of conversation and, like, clearly a lot of plot lines like Joan Crawford's are, like, about class and Kringlein as well, like, what it means to have to worry about money in a place like the Grand Hotel, and yet I can't tell if 300 marks is supposed to be a shit ton of money or barely anything. The Baron just owes this indistinct amount of money, which is anywhere between 20 bucks and $14,000, like is offered things between those numbers constantly. And I cannot tell what the like target number is at any point, And it infuriates me. How much? Okay, I just looked this up because I was really curious. Okay. So in January of 1932, so we'll say like around the time this movie was being made, mm -hmm. 4.24 German marks was one American dollar. 1.24? 4.24. So Kringlein has 14,000 marks in his coat pocket? Yeah. So he has $3,000 in his coat pocket. I mean, he did win some of that in a poker game. Okay, yeah, I guess that's true. I thought that was the amount that he came with, but it wasn't. Okay. They're so weirdly specific about this one thing. Which is that he has 14000 in his pocketbook total. And then he, for some reason, separates it out so that he can explain to Joan Crawford that he came with 10000 and got another 3400 in the poker game. Okay. All right. That's right. I forgot that that happened. For some reason, from the moment he pulled out the pearls he was supposed to steal, and I was like, one, those look like they're fake. And two, like, how much could that possibly be worth that it's worth all this hemming and hawing? Like, he definitely tripped over five things that were worth more money than that string of pearls on his way in. Pearls can be pretty cheap, even if they are real. Like, it might be, like, 600 of today's dollars, which I don't think is going to dig him out of his hole. Right. Given, A, how cheap all of her clothing looks, and B, the fact that everybody around her constantly lies to her... I'm not entirely sure that the dancer's pearls would be real because they could have just been like, yeah, that admirer of yours totally sent you these very expensive pearls. And really they like went down to the paste jewelry shop and put them in a box and sent them to her so she wouldn't feel bad. This is the thing about how much he owes where it's like at one point Kringlein offers him 300 marks just like on the spot for being a good friend. Which, dude, why are you going for, like, being uh, just, like, four-story man when you're clearly a confidence man? Because everyone just hands you money constantly. You have to turn it away. And you're utterly charming. <laughs> everyone who meets this dude goes like, oh, you're in some real financial trouble. Can I dig into my life savings to help you out? And he's like, no, I couldn't possibly. I need to break into the hotel room of someone else in the building. The only honorable way to live. That is a really good point. It's not just that people are constantly, like, trying to give him money. 
It's the the first scene that he has with Joe Crawford where he is basically like all up on her and is whispering in her ear and they like almost kiss 16 times and they've literally met 30 seconds before and then Greta Garbo falls madly in love with him. Like everybody loves this dude. He should totally be a con man. She even offers him the pearls. She's like, oh, you could have them. Right. He can just take the pearls. Kringlein offers him 300 marks, and I can't figure out if he doesn't take it just because of his weird sense of honor or because 300 marks isn't nearly enough, because I can't figure out how much those pearls are supposed to be worth or how much he owes. But he could definitely talk Kringlein into just giving him the $14,000 he tries to steal and then thinks better of. He could definitely just, like, tell Kringlein, I need this, but I'm gonna, like, run away with my rich dancer wife and, like, we want you to come with us and, like, we'll travel Europe with us. And Kringlein would be like, yeah, I'm in immediately. Let's do this thing. And he even turns down the pearls once they're offered to him. Yes. He's like, yeah, I came to steal your pearls. And she's like, oh, you can have them. And he's like, nah. Doesn't yet somebody else offer him money? Isn't there, like, a third person that's just, like going to hand him cash and he's like oh no i couldn't possibly i mean probably because that's his whole movie (sighs) this is gonna be the first year where i'm gonna disagree with the academy well see i was just about to get to that because i was looking over the list and i was like i mean i want to disagree with the academy but i'm not sure despite all the problems i have with this movie i have less problems with anything else we watched this year oh see i I think Shanghai Express absolutely drags this movie behind it as if it were tied to a train. I guess to me it's like Grand Hotel isn't is sloppy with how it deals with money and plot details and Shanghai Express is sloppy with how it deals with race and like I'll take Grand Hotel any day of the week. On paper, I would agree with you that, like, okay, plot details and money are not as important to get right as ethnic representation. Oh, yeah. However, I don't think that Grand Hotel is only sloppy on those. I find that the portrayal of women is is super offensive, frankly. Okay, yeah, that's fair. And I also don't think that this movie isn't racist by the so-called virtue of not featuring anyone who isn't white isn't necessarily like, okay, well, it wins on that account. Like, yeah, okay, well, everybody in the movie is white, so there's no awkward representation of a Chinese warlord. But the story in Shanghai Express is so much better. The characters are so much better developed. It does actually feature at least one person of color in a lead role who is not a makeup caricature of, like, Fu Manchu the warlord, played by literally the guy who would go on to play Fu Manchu. (laughs) But Shanghai Express is just a better movie. The emotion in it is so much more founded, and Anime Wong does have a, like, fuck your white feminism line in it. Okay, here's the argument I'm gonna make, is... I am going to agree with you that Shanghai Express is a better movie in that I am probably going to... What did we give a Shanghai Shanghai Express? Like, I think I probably only gave it like a six or a seven. You gave it a six and I gave it a seven down from a nine because I knocked off points for Eurasian Chinese warlord Henry Chang. I'm going to say, like, I think this movie should score lower than Shanghai Express. Like, I could be talked into bumping Shanghai Express up to a seven and saying this is a six. I'm going to give Grand Hotel a six, but I'm giving Grand Hotel a six all the way across the board. Yes. I'm really only giving it a six because I'm bringing it up from a four for the Baron Wars. Mm, I get what you're saying. I would quibble with the exact numbers because that is my nature. But like, yes. But the the thing that I want to get at about Grand Hotel versus Shanghai Express is, like, I think in pure, like, movie-making terms, Shanghai Express is a better movie than Grand Hotel is. But in the, is that actually what the Academy Awards are rewarding way? I might actually still say Grand Hotel should have won. Like, that I'm happy Grand Hotel won. In that way where, like, Sometimes you're given the Oscar to somebody for, like, all the movies they ever directed and not this one in particular. 
And sometimes you're awarding the movie because you want people to make more movies like this. I would kind of rather they made more movies like Grand Hotel than more movies like Shanghai Express. Whoa, for real? Because I would, like, if they remade Shanghai Express and fixed the one glaring, and to be fair, really bad thing about it, that movie would be fucking perfect. Okay, but like, I was thinking about this a lot because I 100% think they straight up used referenced photos to build the Hyperion Hotel and Angel. But if you remake Grand Hotel and do it right, you get Are You Now or Have You Ever Been on Angel, which is maybe the best episode of Angel? Like, yeah, if if you if you made Shanghai Express again and didn't fuck up any of the things that movie fucked up, it would be one Damn it, I made it so long without cussing. I really did good this time. But if you remade Shanghai Express without any of its problems, then it would be a great movie. But if you remade Grand Hotel without any of its problems, it'd be a great movie too. Except that you could take Shanghai Express, extract... The main villain and entire plot mover of the film? No, 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 no. You extract the actor from it and then digitally put in, I don't know, any fucking body who's half Chinese, half whatever European country he says he's from because I don't think they ever say. I don't know if I... And, and that... That movie is great. Grand Hotel, you couldn't do that. You have to remake the entire movie and tighten up. Uh, there's still a lot of racism in Shanghai Express outside of that dude's casting. Except that the racism in the movie is indicted for the most part. No, I mean, for the most part being like over 50% of the time. But there's a lot of racism in that movie. So the 30% that's left over. What's the... What is the other, like, what is the other racism that the movie doesn't indict, other than Henry Chang? I mean, one, I think, like, the actual writing of Henry Chang's character outside of even the casting is pretty racist, because it's pretty strongly implied that, like, the, the, like, unnatural mix between his Chinese heritage and his European heritage has driven him innately mad. Okay, I didn't pick up on that. I... But I don't, I'm not going to quibble with you on it because that's fucked up. And I think like now that you have pointed it out, I think that's, that's absolutely there. Though for me, it was more that the cultural clash was the reason for that, that in Europe, like he couldn't pass, he couldn't become part of society. And so he's like, fuck it, I'm going to go back and become a warlord in China. But maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, there is some stuff in there, even with the like out and out racist character being told, hey, you're out and out racist. There's some stuff in that movie where the movie doesn't know exactly where that line is, for sure. I think you could remake Shanghai Express without it being a racist film, absolutely, and it would be great. But I think, like, I don't know if that's necessarily an easier task than, like, coming in and shading in the motivations of the characters in the Grand, in Grand Hotel and, like, tightening up the plot. I don't know if that's less work. That's not all of where Grand Hotel falls short. Shanghai Express is better artistically. It's better design-wise. Like, it's a beautiful movie, both in the art direction, costume direction, scenic direction, and in the cinematography, whereas Grand Hotel is, like, totally falls down on the design elements and is workmanlike and successful cinematography-wise. I I don't know. I, like, we're, we're really risking getting into the weeds here, but I feel like this argument is just, like, you really, really fucking love the costume design in Shanghai Express. And you should, because it's great. And I really love the cinematography and the editing. I mean, it's that movie is just beautiful to look at. I mean, you could definitely make the case that Grand Hotel has better sets than Shanghai Express does. And you could make the argument it has better cinematography. It just has really shit editing. I don't know. There's nothing There's nothing in Grand Hotel that, that looks like a, a Rembrandt painting. That opening shot from the top of the building down through all the concentric circles of the different levels of the Grand Hotel down to the lobby. I think that some of the stuff that was in Aerosmith in the totally ludicrous <laughs> medical building were more impressive than that. Oh, sure. I mean, this is what I mean about, like, getting down into the weeds of the thing is that when you're when we get into, like, well, the costumes are a four, but the cinematography is, like, an eight, and that, like, when we start breaking it down into that much detail, like... We are just breaking it down into 50 different subjective 
arguments. I don't think it's even subjective to say that the cinematography for Grand Hotel is anything close to Shanghai Express. Shanghai Express is like, I mean, first of all, it's historically known for that, for having this incredibly stylized and beautiful cinematography, whereas Grand Hotel is like, yeah, we can see everything on the screen. And in Shanghai Express, sometimes you couldn't see everything on the screen, and that was the point, was that there was so much shadow. Again, I think you're being really unfair to Grand Hotel. Like, I get it, and you're right that, like, I would definitely say Shanghai Express has better cinematography, but, like, Grand Hotel isn't just, like, a fucking garbage 1950s filmed live thing. It is not just workmanlike. It does interesting things. It just doesn't do as many interesting things as Shanghai Express does. Okay, that's fair. I mean, there are shots at Grand Hotel that are memorable, definitely. I think the thing that I like about the cinematography in Shanghai Express and why it is so celebrated is that it tells story, it sets mood, whereas in Grand Hotel, I don't feel like that the cinematography does that. No, it doesn't. No, the cinematography does a good job with setting in Grand Hotel, but it it doesn't do mood. I, I will totally agree with you on that. Like, the cinematography in Shanghai Express is almost its own, like, almost its own character. <laughs> Whereas in Grand Hotel, like, there's some great shots. That shot that you're talking about with all the concentric circles of the different floors is great. There's an overhead shot of the Baron snuggling with his dachshund on the floor that's really nice. There are definitely some great shots in there. So I'll walk back that it's just workmanlike, but it's it didn't blow me away. I think, actually what undermined this movie so much for me is that I read so many things that said like, like how innovative this movie was. And they were perhaps so technical that I couldn't see them as someone who's not a filmmaker. The innovative stuff is very showy in a way that didn't particularly interest me. I will agree on that. I would like more movies made in this way, less because of the cinematography and more because like, I don't know. It just felt more like a movie that, you know, I guess I'm less arguing that I want more movies made like this than I know more movies like this will be made. That's true, but that's also true of Shanghai Express. Sure. We definitely have the beginnings in this year of like two of the greatest movie settings you can have. A really amazing hotel or everybody is trapped together on a train. The the two genders. But you like know, the, I, the two, right, exactly the two genders, hotel and train. But I do, I, I don't know. I, I still, I like, I guess it, it's about the racism, and it's also just about like I just didn't enjoy the like last third of Shanghai Express very much, whereas like this never really sank to the level of like oh come on God, but it also never really rose to the level that Shanghai Express did several times of like. Holy shit, this movie, like, is really great when it wants to be. Like, there there are no, like, oh, this needs to be included in, like, every Oscar montage of all time shots in Grand Hotel. And there are a couple of those in Shanghai Express. There's just also some stuff that really irritated the hell out of me and wanted, like, made me want it to not win. See, that's how I felt about Greta Garbo every time she was on screen in this movie. I I wanted to scream. And I think Greta Garbo is is amazing, but this was like, oh, she was so, her character was just grating. Oh, she she just bored me. Like I I was just like, oh god, it really is just this. And like I guess it was that I was spent so much of the movie <laughs> waiting for like some new level of her to unfold because it's Greta Garbo, and that it just never did. So I didn't really like have time to be upset at her because I was just like, here it comes. No here it comes for the whole movie uh yeah that's fair but she never actively irritated me and maybe if i watched the movie again she would i don't know like i wish there was like a third option that we could go like oh absolutely like the champ is great but like i get being torn but i don't think i would reverse the academy's decision against grand hotel I get the argument that it should have been Shanghai Express. This is certainly the first time it's ever been even close since we started doing this. Oh, absolutely. I think I would I would stick with Grand Hotel. But I I don't think Shanghai Express is an insane choice. Um the way where like if last 
year, you were like, oh, it's gotta be Traitor Horn. I'd be like, what? (laughs) (laughs) No. Speaking of of movies that handle women poorly, uh, there's no other movie in this year that I I think would come up to the level of either Shanghai Express or Grand Hotel. Yeah, I would agree with that. Either in, like, any of the big three categories for me, which are acting, narrative, or visual stuff. No, there's a couple where, like, I could see a version of, like, Bad Girl, I could see being... Bad Girl's the movie I liked the most next to these two. Yeah. How do you give it to Bad Girl next to these huge sweeping movies? No, I guess what I'm arguing for is basically, like, in two years we're gonna watch It Happened One Night. (laughs) Um, like, I guess I'm not really arguing for Bad Girl so much as I'm arguing for the plotline of romantic comedy having some potential. I'm fine with romantic comedies having some potential. Bad Girl is a romantic farce that almost tips into tragedy and then barely escapes it. That movie was so weird. Yeah. The champ is, like, Rocky will come out of it, and that's great, but, like, that's the best thing about that movie is that Rocky will happen because it happened. Yeah. Five Star Final was trash. One Hour With You was trash. The Smiling Lieutenant was trash, but not as much as One Hour With You. (laughs) Aerosmith was trash with some really great matte paintings. Yeah, Aerosmith was the only movie in this year that tried to come up to the same level that Shanghai Express and Grand Hotel did, but it crashed and burned miserably. (laughs) So I guess we have to agree to disagree here. I think that's fair. Like, I I think that's fine. Like, I just kind of can't... The stuff that Shanghai Express does wrong, I just can't get past enough to, like, give it credit for the stuff that it does better than Grand Hotel. Which it definitely does. Like, it definitely has several very large important parts of the film that it does better than Grand Hotel. But I, I, I'm I, still going to go with Grand Hotel. Well, that is fair. So would you recommend that, that people watch this movie? <sighs> Grand Hotel specifically, in case anyone is confused, since we just talked about six. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, our All Quiet on the Western Front episode just came out this week in the real world in the real world road rules challenge and (laughs) it got me thinking about just like what quality level versus should you watch this movie is and like i guess i would say watch this movie but i would also say like not because it's super great and you're going to be riveted every moment but like it's interesting even when it's not particularly good and when it's actually kind of irritating there's a level on which if I weren't watching Grand Hotel for a podcast where I had to talk about it, I would have enjoyed it more. If I could just go with the flow and not worry about, like, who everyone was and keeping track of all their plot lines. And, like, there are definitely enjoyable characters and performances and shots in this film. And it's not, like, overly long. It's not, like, three hours or something. So I'd say, yeah. It's like two hours, yeah. right? 2.15. God, not 2.15. I don't think 2.15. I think it's like one fifty or something. I would say that if you are a fan of great acting, regardless of the context in which it is happening, which a lot of people are, yeah. if you are yourself an actor and want to see like a masterclass on how to take a script that is kind of crap and do something absolutely phenomenal with it, watch it. Because John and Lionel Barrymore are unparalleled with fleshing out very, very wireframe characters. I think anybody could enjoy this movie, but I would like specifically say you have to watch this to people who are like really into watching great acting. It is not like watching Daniel Day-Lewis where you're like, my God, that man is working really, really hard. Like watching Daniel Day-Lewis act to me is like watching somebody run a marathon uphill with a boulder strapped on their back. Yeah, it's definitely like there's a bit of sadism in enjoying Daniel Day-Lewis performances. He's definitely working really, really hard, but I'm also very aware that he's working really, really hard. That is not how the Barrymores are at all. (laughs) Yeah, no, there's definitely like effortless charm and like just making the material work is is impressive 
from them. So I would I would definitely watch it for them. Yeah, I mean it's a it's a good movie to catch if it's on yeah. Turner Classic Movies. That seems about right. Like I I wouldn't necessarily like seek out this film, but if somebody's like you should watch Grand Hotel or like hey, that's on. Yeah, definitely like you can you can watch this movie without having without feeling like you wasted two hours of your life. It's a good it's a good movie. If you just want like a good ensemble movie that takes place in a hotel, watch Ocean's Eleven because it is amazing. Yeah. I've seen that movie like four hundred times. The original or the nineties one? The nineties one. I figured. I haven't seen the original because I'm afraid that it will ruin the the other one for me. Because it's a movie where like no one really shouts there's not a whole lot of stakes, but they, like, make some. Yeah. It's a great movie to watch if you have a hangover. Oh, God, yes. I'd never thought of that, <laughs> but yeah. No, it absolutely is. It's got that, like, law and order feeling of, like, you can get distracted for 15 minutes and come back. And, like, no matter what the revelation is, you're like, I knew it. <laughs> and, like, and you feel great. It's just a movie that makes you feel good. Like, you specifically feel good. Not necessarily for the characters, but you feel good for watching it. Related, because we will never watch it for this. People should watch Logan Lucky, which is the the sort of hillbilly Ocean's Eleven that came out last year by the same director. Um, that is very enjoyable. I watched it on the plane on my way back from a recent vacation with my wife to Japan on her recommendation, and I really enjoyed it. And we will be collecting a check from them next week. Uh, <laughs> yes. No, we, we won't. We won't really. It's a good hangover movie as well for similar reasons. But instead, next week, we'll be watching Smiling Through, which, judging by that title, is going to be garbage. But judging by that poster is going to be solid gold <laughs> because, God, that's a bad poster. Yeah, it's not amazing. Norma Shear is in it, and I like her. And I'm, I'm hoping that this time she's not playing a woman who cheats on her husband just so that the score is even because he cheated on her. But the producer or the director of this has uh, produced some Ernst Lubitsch films. So I'm hoping that he is not drunk from the same well. So I'm not ready for another one. <laughs> oh, God. The first two lines of the plot summary, Susan. Oh, God. Yep. Oh, God. Well, uh... Oh, God. Oh, God. It's Ghost. <laughs> oh, God. All right, guys, well, uh, either, if you can't wait, go read the Wikipedia plot description. I didn't even mean to. I was just trying to make sure she didn't cheat on him. And then it went some places immediately. <laughs> if you don't like spoilers, then tune in next week for our podcast. Actually, you should tune in either way. Yeah. We love spoilers here at the Screen Test of Time. So feel free to tune in. Uh, until then, this was a movie. This was, I mean, this was it definitely was a, movie. a movie. So th we've got that going for us. Till next week. Goodbye, everybody. Grand Hotel. Always the same. People come, people go. <laughs> Nothing ever happens.